One day, Jesus said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side of the lake. So they got into a boat and set out. As they sailed, he fell asleep. A squall came down on the lake so that the boat was being swamped and they were in great danger. The disciples went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we're going to drown. He got up and rebuked the wind, the the raging waters. The storm subsided and all was calm. Where is your faith? He asked his disciples. In fear and amazement, they asked one another, Who is this? He commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him. They sailed to the region of Gerasenes, which is across the lake from Galilee. When Jesus stepped ashore, he was met by a demon-possessed man from the town. For a long time, this man had not worn clothes or lived in a house, but had lived in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell at his feet, shouting at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the Most High? I beg you, don't torture me. For Jesus had commanded the impure spirit to come out of the man. Many times it had seized him. And though he was, ch- though he was chained hand and foot and kept under guard, he had broken his chains and had been driven by the demon to solitary places. Jesus asked him, what is your name? Legion, he replied, because many demons had gone into him. And they begged Jesus repeatedly not to order them to go into the abyss. A large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. The demons begged Jesus to let him go into the pigs. He gave them permission. When the demons came out of the man, they went into the pigs um, and, the herd, and the herd rushed down the, the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. When those tending the pigs saw what had happened, they ran off and reported this into the town and countryside and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they found the man from the demons had gone out sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people how the demon-possessed man had been cured. Then all the people of the region of Gerasenes asked Jesus to leave them because they were overcome with fear. He got into the boat and left. The man from the demon had gone out and begged to go with him, but Jesus sent him away saying, return home and tell, tell how much God has done for all of you. So the man went away and told all over the town how much Jesus had done for him. Um, nice to be with you guys. I'm Ben. Um, I've been at HTC about four years. Um, a few of those years leading a connect group with my wife, Amy, who's down the front. You'll normally find us at the 11.15, so it's good to be back at the five. Unite owls. Um, and yeah, a big passage tonight. Um, and this series that we've been looking at has been uh, under the banner of No One Like Jesus. Um, and tonight I think we really see there is no one like Jesus. In previous weeks, you know, we've seen him as a great teacher, but you might say, well, Gandhi was a good teacher, and you know, Mother Teresa had some good things to say. We've seen him as a healer, but you might say Florence Nightingale healed a lot of people. Well, I wonder how many teaching, healing, exercising meteorologists you know. I'm going to say none. So I think tonight the debate ends. There is no one like Jesus. Um, I'll also say if it's your first time here tonight or you're new to the faith, um, apologies in advance because this is a big passage to jump in on. Um, It's kind of like learning to read by being given Dostoyevsky or something like that. Um, 
But we're really glad to have you with us, and who knows, maybe if you can grasp this stuff and get your head around this, the rest might be easy. Maybe. Um, but yeah, we are dealing with some pretty big topics tonight. Um, and they might even tap into some struggles that we personally are facing tonight. Um, but the good news there is we are all grappling with this together. I would say I am as baffled by wave rebukes and pig demons as you are. So rather than looking for the quick and simple answer, we're going to come to the word of God humbly, carefully, prayerfully to see what God has to say to us tonight. So let's just pray as we start out. Father, thank you for your word and its relevance, and thank you for the Spirit of God that helps us to comprehend and to live by these words. And we just come before you now, uh, we come to look at this passage with soft hearts and ears ready to listen as we were talking about last week. Um, and we pray that like the disciples in this passage, we would see Jesus in a new light through the words that we read tonight. In your precious name, amen. Amen. Cool. Um, we're going to run through this sort of line by line. So if you have got a Bible, keep it open in front of you. And we're going to keep jumping into it. Um, so yeah, starting out there, verse 21. So one day Jesus said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side of the lake. Take note of that bit. We're going to come back to it. So they got into a boat and set out. And as they sailed, he fell asleep. So here we see Jesus being totally human. He's been ministering to big crowds and now he needs a nap. Mark even includes the detail that he falls asleep on a little cushion, which I think is quite a nice touch. Um, we then read, a squall came down on the lake so that the boat was being swamped and they were in great danger. Um, I've always thought reading this that a squall was just another name for a storm. But actually I was learning it's more like a sudden, intense storm that comes out of nowhere with very little warning. So they'd have been feeling, this was something quite unusual, there was something going on here that was more than just the usual storms they saw on the Lake Galilee. And we can tell it's serious, because this is a boat full of seasoned, hardened fishermen, and even they are terrified. Verse 24, the disciples went and woke him saying, Master, Master, we're going to drown. The first thing that happens when fear kicks in is that we lose perspective. They have been following Jesus around. They've seen him work miracles. But right now, they can't see anything but the waves in front of them. Master, we are going to drown. What does Jesus do? Well, first, he's not in the slightest bit afraid. He's having a nap on his cushion. But secondly, and we read on, Jesus got up and rebuked the wind and the raging waters. He rebuked the wind he doesn't wave a hand or kind of utter some Latin words over it like in Harry Potter or something like that. He tells them off. That says that these are not just passive hydrogen or oxygen elements. These are active agents conspiring against Jesus' plans. So he speaks not just to dead particles but to the soul of nature. And the other two Gospels, uh, sorry, Matthew and Mark, quote the words that he says. He says, peace, be still. And what happens? We read on, the storm subsided and all was calm. That is the power of the word of Jesus. Okay, quick story time. Uh, when I think of the times that I have been really afraid in life, <clears throat> one that comes to mind is having knee surgery. I had torn my ACL playing football with some of the guys here. 
Um, again, if you're new to church, don't believe that Christians, it's just a nice exterior. There is a dark and competitive side that comes out when they play sport. Tore my ACL, had to have it operated on. Um, and that meant being put under anesthetic and having my leg operated on while I was asleep. That for me was a pretty scary thing. It was unknown, I hadn't been through that before. So I was sat there, kind of in the hospital ward, waiting to be summoned for the operation. Um, And I would say that in me, there was a real storm gathering. It was like a real fear and anxiety and I didn't know what was coming. And I was just praying, Lord, please bring your peace here. So I'm sat waiting to be called. Um, I decide to go for a precautionary loo trip. We don't need to cover that one in detail. But I'm washing my hands, and as I look up, I see this. Hopefully people can see that. (laughs) Now, I don't know how many scripture-themed healthcare products you have come across. (laughs) I feel like if the angels were having a brainstorm, they would come up with something like Temple Spa. That just seemed fitting. But whatever the case, as I'm sat there, probably the most scared I've been in my life. I look up and I see the same words that Jesus spoke over the storm. Peace, be still. Now, the message there is, whatever you are feeling as you sit here tonight, whatever fear you are facing, Jesus has an answer. He rebukes it. And he says to be still. And he offers us his peace. But I did feel as well, we shouldn't just minimize this to a story about the storms of life. Um, I mentioned to a work colleague I was chatting to um, that I was preaching this evening. And he said, what are you preaching on? And I said, oh, Jesus calming the storms. Didn't mention the bit about demon pigs. Um, And he was like, oh, so something about, you know, the storms of life, that kind of thing. And I was like, damn it, he's rumbled me. But then as I was preparing, I really felt a challenge not just to reduce it to that. Yes, he is Jesus and Lord over the storms of life but he is also Lord over the physical, literal weather and the storms. And that is the view of Jesus that we should have as we approach this. So he's Lord over the metaphorical storms. He's Lord over the physical storms. Let's plow on. Verse 25, he says, where is your faith? He asked his disciples. Where is your faith? He doesn't belittle the storm. He doesn't even mention it. He knows that they had very good reason to be afraid, but he speaks to their hearts because they were too focused on the storm to remember his words to them in the very first verse. I said we'd come back to it. Let's go over to the other side. So he had said they would make it. Their fault was not in fearing, it was in forgetting. Let's not be people who hear the word of God and immediately forget it. I know I'm prone to that. Let's cherish his words. Let's return to them so that we can recall them when the storms come. What's the disciples' response to that? Well, it is not. Then they all jumped in the air and said, Go, Jesus! Like something from the Barbie movie. It's not that response. In fear and amazement, they asked one another, Who is this? He commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him. Fear and amazement. They've been walking around with Jesus, but they realize at this point they know only a fraction of who he is. They've seen only a bit of his power. And maybe that's us tonight as we read this. We have had a small view of Jesus. And as we read this, it is blown open. 
In part two, we go on to see that it's not just the physical realm under Jesus' command, it's the spiritual realm too. So let's crack on. Verse 26. I'm going to take a drink at this point, otherwise my voice is going to go. So verse 26. They sailed to the region of the Gerasenes. Gerasenes. Don't know the pronunciation, um, but what matters here is where it is. And we read it's across the lake from Galilee. So this is Gentile territory they're coming into. Spiritually speaking, a land walking in darkness. And we know that because they keep pigs, which you wouldn't have had in a kosher Jewish society. Verse 27, when Jesus stepped ashore, he was met by a demon-possessed man from the town. Buckle up, folks. For a long time, this man had not worn clothes or lived in a house, but had lived in the tombs. Now, because of that, he would have been notorious. Everyone would have known who this guy was. If there was a guy who ran around Clapham Common with no clothes on, shouting out, word would probably spread pretty quick. So that people would have known who this guy was. In verse 28, when he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell at his feet, shouting at the top of his voice, what do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, don't torture me. For Jesus had commanded the impure spirits come out of the man. Many times it had seized him, and though he was chained hand and foot and kept under guard, he had broken his chains and had been driven by the demon into solitary places. Okay, let's pause. Because this is a lot to take in. As my American colleagues would say, it's a lot. So, demons. Who are they? Where are they? What do they look like? Is it the woman who scowled at me on the bus? Is it the person sat next to me tonight? What about governments, businesses? Did they come up with the concept of Argos? No disrespect to Argos fans. The point there is, I think our tendency when we read passages like this is to go on a kind of goose chase for the demonic, to look out for the weird and the wacky so that we can easily put a label on it. The issue with that is, if we don't find that or if we don't see that around us, we come to the conclusion that actually demons don't exist today. Or maybe they do in other cultures, but not in ours. Friends, I think that's what the enemy would want us to believe. I think he'd want us to believe that because we don't see many streaking, shrieking men around, his agents have stopped working. C.S. Lewis offers us some really helpful guidance here. He says, there are two and equal opposite, two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. And there are definitely signs of the latter in our culture. Look at the amount of marketing that you see around the devil or the satanic, or the jump in the number of horror films being made. It's increased something like five times in the last couple of decades. Now, you might enjoy horror films. Whatever the case, it's literally something that is making money and entertainment out of people's fear. So we have to approach that carefully. But I think generally, generally in the church, we probably fall into the first camp, not acknowledging that they're out there. And all that that means is that actually the enemy is able to operate in the shadows, unchecked and unchallenged. Tonight, I think the Lord wants to shift our perspective so that we can see the enemy's agents for what they are, call out their work, and bring it under the power of Jesus. Because they bow at his feet as we read in this passage. 
So let's jump back into the passage. Let's examine it soberly and alert, as the Bible says. And let's just introduce a couple of definitions here. So in simple terms, throughout the Bible, the devil is referring to the enemy that sets himself against Jesus, often called Satan. Demons are those who carry out his bidding, and the demonic is the work that those agents do. And to see where they are, sometimes we have to look not for the demons, but for their work and for the impact that they have. As Jesus said, by their fruit, you will know them. He was talking about diseased and sort of healthy trees. Or to use another analogy, you can't see the wind, but you can see the effect that it has on the trees and the seas. So let's jump back in, looking for that kind of bad fruit and the impact, not being distracted by the goose chase. We read that the man is chained hand and foot, so the enemy binds us up. But at the same time, we read that he can't be bound. Any attempt to restrain him is breached, so he's also restless and he is impossible to tie down. It says that he's naked and without a home, and it says he's driven into solitary places. So let's have a look back at that list. Captivity, restlessness, rootlessness, Immodesty, isolation, marginalization. Do any of those sound familiar? Suddenly, by looking at it that side, we see they, the enemy's agents haven't stopped working today. They've just become better at hiding it. Well, tonight, with Scripture as our guide, Jesus as our Lord, we call out that work so that we can bring it under the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Let's crack on because I'm sure you've got a million questions now. <laughs> Verse 30. Jesus asked him, what is your name? Legion, he replied, because many demons had gone into him. See how Jesus greets the man. He's approached by this crazed madman, and instead of doing what most of us would do and running a mile away, or maybe kind of waving a hand and saying, the power of Christ compels you, Jesus stands and he asks the man his name. He sees the person through the pain. He sees the man in the madness. So what's the lesson there? The lesson is that we can call out the demonic and the work of the enemy without condemning the person. So we can identify fear, anxiety, loneliness, addiction, division, and much more as the work of the enemy, the result of us living in imperfect bodies in a fallen world without saying that we are demons or demon-possessed. Okay, so that's one thing that we learned. The other thing it's saying is this idea of the now and not yet that we've kind of talked about a bit recently, but we're in this period where we are living in Jesus' victory over death while waiting for his ultimate victory over the agents of darkness who continue to work in the meantime. And it's why Paul in Ephesians says, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. Confused? No, the rest of you are. I'm getting some blank faces. Verse 31, let's continue. They begged Jesus repeatedly not to order them to go into the abyss. A large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. The demons begged Jesus to let them go into the pigs, and he gave them permission. When the demons came out of the man, they went into the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. So their best efforts to avoid the abyss are unsuccessful because they end up in the bottom of a lake. So let's just take a moment here to acknowledge Jesus' power. This is a legion of demons. 
A legion in Roman times meant up to 6,000. And that's affirmed in Mark's Gospels because he says there were 2,000 pigs. So it's a lot. And they are powerful too. They possess the man to break physical chains over and over again. And like the squall before that we read about, we shouldn't minimize the threat here. This is serious stuff and it's scary stuff. But look at how those legions respond to Jesus. They throw themselves at his feet. They beg him for mercy. They flee into the pigs only when he gives them permission. And even then, they run a mile from Jesus into the depths of Lake Galilee. Jesus is Lord over the physical realm, and he is Lord over the spiritual realm. As I say, we're in this period of now and not yet, so we can pray into these things. We might see Jesus respond. Sometimes it doesn't. But for a while, his enemies are allowed to work. But he is no less Lord, and that should be the basis of our prayers. Let's continue. Verse 34. When those tending the pigs saw what had happened, they ran off and reported this in the town and countryside. That's probably because they've just lost their source of income, these pigs that they were relying on. So they go out and tell everyone. Verse 35, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed and in his right mind. And they were, not amazed, afraid. There it is again. The fear of darkness dwarfed by the fear of Jesus, like a lizard in the presence of a lion. The two do not stack up. It even mentions it twice. Verse 37, then all the people of the region asked Jesus to leave them because they were overcome with fear. So he got into the boat and left. Jesus leaves that land, but he doesn't leave it to darkness. The delivered man, we read in the next bit, asks to come with him, and, he asks, and Jesus says to stay where he is. And maybe that's a message for some of us tonight, that you can follow Jesus while remaining where you are. Sometimes he calls us out, sometimes he calls us to stay and minister to those around us. And through prayer, reflection, and good counsel, you can figure that out. I don't have the answers, unfortunately. So... That brings us to the end of the passage and a huge amount of ground covered. So to save you going home more confused than you came in, let's try and tie some of that together. Um, and to do that, I want to talk a bit about feet. Not my own. Um, but feet are mentioned all throughout this passage. And actually, it's the theme throughout Jesus' ministry. Um, and also, I think it gives us a really helpful framework for working through some of this stuff. You'll remember last week we heard about the lady with the alabaster jar, so breaking the flask of perfume over Jesus' feet and cleaning them with her tears and her hair. A really messy but beautiful scene. In the Gospels, we see the man of, uh, who was healed of leprosy throw himself at Jesus' feet. We see Jairus throw himself at Jesus' feet, asking to heal his daughter. And we see the woman who met Jesus in the garden after his resurrection throwing themselves at his feet in wonder. So it happens over and over again. And then we come to this passage and we see the demon casting himself at Jesus' feet. So even the demons recognize Jesus' lordship. And it's this involuntary response. It's like this involuntary response to seeing the power and the holiness of Jesus. But it's also a sign of his mercy because we then see the demon in his right mind, sat peacefully, where? At Jesus' feet. 
That gives us a model for dealing with this idea of the demonic and of fear. Um, and actually, I'd say it's something that I had to kind of work through personally this week. I said one of the times I felt really afraid was before my knee surgery. The other time was ahead of speaking this weekend. When I realized the passage, and I kind of, it dawned on me what I felt God was calling me to say, I was terrified. Um, I was kind of like, I'm in deep water here, totally underqualified to speak on this. I don't have a theology degree or a single exorcism to my name. And a lot of these topics are, you know, personal for me and I'm grappling with them. But as I got deeper into the passage, I started to see the real Jesus. And I saw him sleeping through a squall, silencing a storm, banishing a legion of demons. And I thought, I have nothing to fear. I am on the right side and we are on the right side. And then it gave way to a whole new fear in me. Not about my inadequacy to take on demons and to speak on this, but my inadequacy in the face of Jesus. My sin and my shame against his beauty and holiness and perfection and majesty. And suddenly it was me falling at his feet in fear. I had this moment as I was reading when I heard him turn to me and say, let me wash your feet. Not only that, but I went to open my Bible, and I don't want to give the impression this happens every time, because it definitely doesn't. I opened it, and it came onto the passage of Jesus washing the disciples' feet. So I wonder if, um, if you've got your Bibles open, we could even flick forward to it. It's in John 13. If not, I'll read it out. But as I read it, with all of this in mind, I started to notice things I hadn't even noticed before, and it ties in so directly to this passage and what we read about the demons falling at Jesus' feet. So John 13. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. So this is his closing act. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. So we see that the devil's at work here as well. But Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, wrapped a towel around his waist, and after that he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was wrapped around him. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power so he got up, took off his outer clothing, and washed their feet. Now, by worldly wisdom, that is not a logical chain of events for one to lead to the other. But that is the essence of the kingdom of God. His response to having all things under his feet and in his control, whether the waves or the demons, is to get up and wash our feet. There really is no one like Jesus. Brothers and sisters, we worship a storm-stilling, squall-squashing, wave-making, way-making, demon-defying, death-denying God. So we do not need to fear. Not only that, but we can throw ourselves at his feet in submission and see how he washes our feet before he invites us to sit back at his feet 
at peace and in our right minds, as we read about with this guy here. So to summarize, if all of that can be summarized, we start, and we might have this coming up, with a healthy fear of the enemy from seeing that he is out there. We see it for what it is. But that gives way to the fear of Jesus. It brings us to the feet of Jesus to receive his power, and then it brings us back to the feet of Jesus to receive his mercy. And that's what we're going to do tonight in worship and in prayer as we respond. I'll invite the band back up. Um, but as we do that, just a couple of things that I felt God might be challenging us about tonight. One is to open our eyes to the enemy's work. Not to be fearful, but to just have a healthy caution. And also to see it for what it is. And that allows us to bring things like fear, isolation, addiction, anxiety, depression, division, restlessness, whatever it might be, something completely different. It allows us to bring it before him and claim Jesus' victory over that. And I know that will be difficult and personal for people. I'm not saying that lightly. But Jesus is Lord and he's over it. The other thing, so opening our eyes to the enemy's work. The other thing is opening our eyes to Jesus and who he is. As we said, the enemy is dwarfed in his presence like a lizard in the presence of a lion. So maybe you want to respond to that by just kneeling before him tonight as we worship. Maybe you want to physically respond and just kneel down. Maybe you want to just kind of come back to his feet to know his mercy and his peace. But however it is you want to respond, whatever it is you feel that he's saying, bring that before him tonight and believe that he will meet you in that place. So as we go into uh, worship, and as we respond now, um, there will be the chance to kind of come forward and receive prayer. There'll be people at the front who can pray for you. But also I thought I'd just lead us in a liturgy that I found really, really helpful. Um, so this is from a book called Every Moment Holy, which kind of pulls together prayers, scripture, into these liturgies that we can pray. And sometimes it's helpful when you can't find the words yourself. <laughs> so I'll read this. Maybe you want to just join with me in your heads of saying these words, just saying amen. And then, uh, yeah, we'll respond. So this is a liturgy to the praise, a liturgy of praise to the King of Creation. Lord, our thoughts of you have been too small, too few, for seldom have we considered how specific is the exercising of your authority, extending as it does to the myriad particulars of creation. There is no quarter over which you are not King. And as creation hurtles towards its liberation and redemption, the full implications of your deep lordship are yet to be revealed in countless facets unconsidered. Christ, you are the snow king. You are the maker of all weathers. You are the king of sunlight and storms, the king of gray skies and rain. You are the rain king, the sun king, the hurricane king. You are the king of autumn and the king of spring. You were before all things, you created all things, and you and in you all things are held together. There is no corner of creation you will fail to redeem. You are Lord of Lords and King of Kings, Jesus Christ, our King of everything. Amen. Amen.